Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Explored, a podcast on sustainability and innovation in business and economy, a safe and friendly place to learn more about sustainability across industries. My name is Anna, and I'm the podcast host of this show. Every week, I interview one professional in the field to share groundbreaking ideas on sustainability in certain sphere, shed light on complicated concepts, and get some guidance on how to actually implement sustainability. You're listening to the episode number 23, season 2, and today we're exploring urban sustainability. What qualifies as an eco-city? What kind of professionals form a working group of the city determined to become sustainable and resilient? Examples of sustainable cities worldwide, and this is where my guest is coming from, example of a city-state of Singapore that we will be focusing on today. So today I have a privilege and pleasure to interview my dear friend, colleague and classmate from a master's program we did together, European Master in Applied Ecology, Go Terry Young. Join this exciting audio journey of ours and let's get it started. So hi everyone and hi my dear guest Terry Young. Today I have a privilege and you know I'm specifically especially happy to interview my former classmate with whom we studied in France for our master's in applied ecology, who was also my neighbor in Poitiers. Uh, please welcome Terry Young. Today we are going to talk about urban sustainability, so the sustainability in the cities. Uh, UN says that more than 70% of people will live in cities and conglomerates uh, in 30 years actually by uh, 2050 and so we thought it would be very interesting to unpack this topic and to explore sustainability in the city. Hi Ter Young, I'm very pleased and happy to have you here with me today. Hello Anna, thank you for inviting me to this interview, it's my pleasure. Would you brief us and tell us what you do now and you know where you started your path in sustainability since we graduated? Uh, what did you do probably for, for, for your master's project and then how you slowly progressed to what you do now? Okay, so, um, okay, I'll, I'll try to keep this very concise. Um, so I've always had a passion for nature and the environment since I was really, really young, uh, which is why I, I did the master's in applied ecology review. Uh, so, um, Initially, like many nature people, uh, my attention and my focus was on the natural environment and the plants and animals and the ec ecological interactions. But it was during the master's program that I, I slowly started to realize that, hey, you know, if I want to protect the environment, yes, uh, attention and, and the study, uh, attention paid to the natural environment and the study of the natural environment is important. But equally important, if not more important, is to study how people interact with the natural environment. So my master's thesis project was less so on the study of the natural environment, but more on the mechanisms, the, the conservation policies that people use to, uh, to influence people to protect the environment. And, and the policy instrument that I'm talking about is PES, 
payments for ecosystem services. So my project was very different from everyone else. You know, everyone else went into nature and, and looked at plants and animals and, and did very exciting things in very exotic places. But for me, uh, I was talking to people, interviewing them, asking them, you know, uh, uh, what they do for a living, you know, what they do with the money that's given to them. So, so it felt more like a sociological project, which, uh, you know, some of our classmates didn't quite understand, except for Fabiola, uh, who also did a social-based uh, kind of project. So after that experience, I realized, hey, you know, um, conservation is really about how people uh, interact, exploit, for lack of a better word, and uh, you know, uh, protect nature. And really, if we want to protect the natural environment, we really need, we really need to address people's needs and how their needs uh, will be satisfied without over-exploitation of the natural environment. So, so that, that's how my interest sort of swayed toward this angle. So after I graduated from the master's program, um, I, I did I did a job in the sustainability office of a university uh, to get you know the students and staff the university to be more sustainable and looking at how you know uh, to get people to be more supportive of uh, sustainable policies implemented in the university. So uh, you can see that I've shifted towards urban sustainability. And right now I work in the Center for Liberal Cities in Singapore. Uh, this is a knowledge center that aims to uh, distill knowledge from cities from all over the world and also from Singapore, synthesize them into a, a uh, easily digestible form and share this knowledge with everyone on how to make cities more livable. Uh, apart from this, I also volunteer for Nature Society Singapore, which is an NGO in Singapore that tries to protect, you know, what, you know, the nature areas that's left in Singapore. Not a lot of them, but still important to be conserved. Mm -hmm. Which means you're the, the right person to talk about urban sustainability and sustainability in the city. Um, okay, so I have to qualify this a bit. Um, I'm not an urban planner by training, so uh, uh, I cannot say I'm an expert in, in urban development or urban planning. So, uh, but I can share with you my experiences living in Singapore as an ordinary citizen and, and infuse this with the lens of sustainability. And hopefully this will give you know, your listeners some insights into how Singapore tries to maintain sustainability within its uh, uh, environment. Right. I read somewhere that uh, Singapore is called the Garden City. To get the terminology right, and you mentioned the NGO that you're volunteering for, to preserve the remaining biodiversity in the city, the greenery. To get the terms right, what is urban sustainability? What qualifies, which city would qualify for sustainable? Okay, so um, I'm sure you would have talked about this in your previous uh, podcast. The term sustainability is a very nebulous term. I mean, uh, there's no precise definition for it. It can mean different things to different people. For some people, uh, sustainability is about the natural environment, how it's protected, how it's conserved. For some people, sustainability is about energy efficiency or re renewable energy. 
For some people, sustainability is about uh, prudent use of resources, uh, how to make the how to use resources more efficient, like water, for example, and how to uh, reduce pollution. So that's also sustainability. So, so if if we are to think about this carefully, actually sustainability can mean anything and everything. So back to term urban sustainability, right? Which city or which town qualifies to be you know, a sustainable city or an eco city, to quote the term. Um, if we are to use this term very strictly, uh, I think we have to admit that no city currently qualifies to be an eco city. But nonetheless, I think it's useful to, to retain this notion because it serves as an ideal it serves as a mission for us. So even if we do not achieve 100% of what an ecosystem is, 50% is still better than 0%. So at least it's target for us to aim for. Mm -hmm. Singapore, a country slash city, would you consider it sustainable? What are the traits of Singapore that makes it unique? Um, Okay, I think you already mentioned it. It's a city-state, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there are not many city-states uh, in, in today's world. Maybe uh, you can consider Monaco as a city-state, but really there's not many cities that are countries on that one. And um, is Singapore sustainable? I would say yes and no. And uh, our sustainable story uh, I would say started uh, when we first became independent, uh, but uh, uh, it, we didn't think of it as sustainability back then. So I think I'll, I'll, I'll give you some examples. So I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with Singapore, but uh, we, we, we call ourselves an accidental country. Uh, we didn't want to be independent. We were actually originally part of Malaysia. Uh, we got kicked out and we were forced to be independent. Uh, the reason why we felt that uh, we couldn't be independent because we are a very small country. Even as a city, we're not a very large city. Uh, we are a medium-sized city. Uh, to give you a sense of scale, uh, we, are we are smaller than the city of London. Uh, we are smaller, probably less than half the size of Beijing in China. So we are a very small place. So. A small place like this, it is inconceivable that we can survive as, as, as an independent country because we have no water, uh, uh, no place to grow our own food, uh, you know, uh, uh, our population is small, we, we don't really have enough manpower to defend ourselves. So we, we never thought we could be independent, but when we got kicked out, we had no choice, we had to survive. So back then, a lot of decisions aimed to ensure the survivability of Singapore, on hindsight, they're actually good for sustainability. So for example, uh, our water management. So uh, we try to maximize water collection uh, within the island. So we have, a we have reservoirs, which are, which are man-made lakes to, to collect water. But, but apart from the reservoir, you need a water catchment area. So water catchment area is, is like a, uh, uh, an area where rainwater will be collected and it will be channeled to the reservoir. So a water catchment area, is uh, it is important for it to be pollution-free because 
because if it's dirty, then the water that goes in the reservoir will be very dirty. Then it will be very difficult to treat them, to make them into drinkable water. So water catchment area, uh, we had to ensure that uh, it's clean and as, as big as possible. So right now, I think we are aiming for two thirds of the country to be a water catchment area. So that means to make sure that that almost the entire island is very clean and free from pollution for the water to be collected, to be pure and, and clean enough for, for treatment. So uh, we did that because we don't have uh, big natural rivers to collect water from. So we had to make use of ev every available bit of space in Singapore to, to, to aid in water collection. And, and that was really survival mode. Um, and even with that, we didn't have enough water to import water from Malaysia. So, um, so that was the so water management is one example. Another example is uh, our pollution controls, which is related to water management. So, um, in this small place, we have we have to use it not only for water collection, but we also needed to house people for residential areas. We needed to do business, so we have to set the set commercial areas, and then there's also industries. We needed to industrialize, so we need place to have factories. So all these places crammed together. We have to make sure that pollution is kept under stringent control, because if not, then you know the place becomes unlivable, inhabitable. It's not as if we could dedicate one part of the country to have all these very polluted industries and and let, the, let that part of the country go to waste and then we move to another part of the country. We, we don't have that luxury. So right from the start, environmental protection, uh, pollution control uh, was uh, a very high priority. So that was from a survival instinct. We don't even enough land. We need to protect our land. But on hindsight, all these pollution controls, they're actually good for sustainability, right? You know, uh, to reduce pollution is obviously protecting the environment in a very important way. So, so when we first started, a lot of things that we did uh, was really for survival, less so for sustainability. But over the years, you know, when, when you know, sustainability became an issue that people are talking about, and we, and we look back at what we have done, yeah, you know, yes, I think we did something good for, for the environment. And yes, in a way, we are sustainable. Uh, no, because I think we have a lot more room for improvement. I think we can do better. Uh, we can improve our recycling rates, for example. We can improve the the attitudes of the common of the population. Uh, if we compare ourselves with, let's say, the Japanese and Taiwanese, uh, I I don't think we are as uh, environmentally conscious as them. So I think there is room for improvement here. Yeah. So it started with the scarcity of resources, and turned into more is in in just functionality. Well, because you don't have this land, you cannot afford, um, what is it called, dumps. Uh, because you don't have natural rivers, you came up with the uh, water purification uh, technology. Is it true that you desalinize uh, your waters into potable water? Uh, yes, actually. So, um, okay, so I think every Singaporean school children actually know this story by now because they actually teach this in school. So in Singapore, we have what we call the four national taps. So the first national tap will be the, actually the reservoirs, you know, the water catchment area, the reservoirs uh, that we already have uh, since independence, uh, that's to collect as much rainwater as possible, but that is clearly insufficient. So the second national tap will be to import water from Malaysia. Uh, 
but there's a danger uh, in that because uh, we are at the mercy of our neighbor to supply water. If for whatever reason they choose not to supply water to us, then, then we don't have enough water. Right. So that was always a, 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 a national security concern. So we had to come up with something that could potentially replace the second national tap. We needed to be self-sufficient in water, which is why we developed two more national taps. The third one was what we call new water, which is actually recycled water. So what happens with all the used water and sequence that is that they get collected in sewers and then they go to a treatment plant to be recycled, to be repurified again into this ultra-pure and clean water, which we call new water. Uh, the reason why we call it new water is because if you call it recycled water, there's a yuck factor associated with it. So people think it's, oh, it's disgusting. So we had new water, we call it new water. We got uh, you know, politicians, we got businessmen to drink this new water in public uh, during national events to convince people, hey, you know, this water is drinkable. So that's the third national tap. And the fourth national tap will be the desalination. So... Uh, we uh, taking seawater, we purify it, become uh, portable water. Uh, this idea actually existed for decades. The reason why it was only done in recent years was simply because of cost. Uh, back then, it was expensive uh, to do this because you know, the technology for this was very expensive back then. But now, the cost of this technology, technology, technology has become more affordable and therefore could do this on a more uh, industrial scale. So these are four national taps and hopefully uh, tap one, three and four can replace tap two uh, in the future so that you know, we, we don't have to be at the mercy of other countries to export water to us. That's so smart. Talk to me about the green buildings. I read that green buildings have been mandatory since 2008. What does the green building mean and what is the strategy of Singapore on that? Okay, so green buildings, um, they, they are not a concept uh, that, are, that is invented by Singapore. This is a concept uh, that has already existed uh, in, in Europe and in the US. They have uh, they have uh, their own uh, standards for green buildings. So green buildings would refer to buildings that will have a lower environmental footprint as compared to conventional buildings. So that means they use energy and water more efficiently. Uh, the materials used to construct the buildings are more environmentally friendly. And also the construction process is also more uh, environmentally friendly. And uh, apart from that, the use of the buildings, the building operations, they also adhere to environmentally friendly practices. So uh, this idea it already existed overseas, right? Uh, we are not the first, one to, first ones to think of it. Uh, but uh, we realized that these standards that were invented in the US or in Europe, uh, for example, LEEDS, mm -hmm. uh, they were really designed for temperate regions. Uh, so they may not be fully suitable for tropical region. So that is why uh, in Singapore, there's a government agency called the Building and Construction Authority. So it's a government agency. Uh, they have come up with their own green building standards, uh, which we call the Green Mark Building. So this, uh, these building standards, uh, 
uh, they aim to make you know uh, buildings in Singapore more uh, efficient in terms of resource utilization and also in their operation. And more importantly, they are suited for tropical environment. So one difference I can share with you is uh, between the standards overseas and the standards in Singapore, the green building standards for Singapore, the green mark uh, standards, uh, they place more emphasis on energy efficiency. Reason being, in Singapore, we use a lot of air conditioning because of the tropical climate. And air conditioning uh, uses up more than half of all energy consumption uh, in, in Singapore. Impressive. Meaning half the electricity generated in Singapore goes into air conditioning. So it's a huge chunk uh, of resources being used just to reduce the temperature to make the place more comfortable. So a lot of the uh, uh, standards or the requirements of green buildings in, in Singapore address this, how air conditioning can be made more efficient or how to actually reduce air conditioning in buildings without compromising comfort levels. So, so thermal comfort is a very uh, significant portion of the green building standards in Singapore. Uh, and, and this is, we feel that this is important for, for a tropical city like us. Right. Speaking of, you know, the, the conventional term of eco city suggests uh, such, a, such a thing as a triple bottom line, uh, environmental, uh, economical, and social uh, component to it. Uh, Singapore is quite unique uh, in terms of the public housing policy. I know about the governmental program of 99 years uh, lease. So this is a social, clearly a social component. Uh, how, can you tell me more about this program and how does it work? And a second part to this uh, same question, is how the, the social component is even ensured in uh, state city state of Singapore. Okay, so actually this is uh, one very good example of um, uh, a, a policy that started off as something to ensure the, the survivability of the country rather than the sustainability. When, when they first designed all these uh, policies, uh, they were really thinking of making sure that Singapore exists as a country and, and less so about sustainability. Uh, and, and I can share with you this uh, because this is a story that, you know, we've all learned in schools and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and it's always part of public education campaigns. So Singaporeans are quite uh, familiar with this. Okay, so um, it really started off when we first became independent. Uh, so if you do not already know, Singapore started off as a very uh, poor, well, okay, Village. I would say very poor, but uh, a poor third world country. So uh, we had lots of problems, uh, not enough water, not enough food, uh, and also very importantly, not enough housing. So back then in 1965, uh, the, a, a significant portion of the population was staying in slums in the downtown area. So the slums had were, were incredibly overcrowded. Uh, 
uh, uh, and sanitation was uh, you know, not satisfactory and uh, there were lots of uh, diseases you know because of the lack of sanitation so housing was was an issue so the first thing that the government did was uh, okay uh, we need to provide housing for the people because without proper housing you can forget about everything else you know you can forget about education you can forget about uh, industries you can forget about the economy because people need a place to live and because we are a small island uh, so straight away from the start it was decided that uh, high density living in the form of high-rise apartment blocks was the way to go uh, we cannot be a low-rise uh, 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 less dense city that you find uh, in, in the US, for example, right? A lot of people stay in nice you know, bungalows and houses. So right from the start, we felt that this wouldn't work for us because we simply don't have the land. So, uh, and because the bulk of the population was poor, so uh, it was, you know, very obvious that, you know, that the, uh, the, the government has to build subsidized public housing for the bulk. Of the population and uh, and that these public housing estates must not repeat the housing uh, the public housing estates of other countries okay so why do i say that because uh, i know from speaking with my foreign friends you know when i when i tell people that i stay in a public housing estate they, they give me this very surprised look like oh but you know, you don't look like one. And I was a bit puzzled because I, I, I didn't quite understand what they mean by that. And, and then I realized that uh, in many countries around the world, public housing is synonymous with poor housing quality, right. that it is housing meant for the poor and the quality is substandard, crime rate is high, and you know, there are lots of social ills and social problems in, in this housing estate. And that is totally not what I experienced. So what the Singapore government did back then was to make sure that these housing estates meant for the bulk of the population must be safe, secure, livable, and more important, you know, uh, uh, pleasant homes, you know, that people enjoy living in. So uh, they made sure that the housing estates had enough schools, enough uh, medical facilities, enough shops. Uh, they even tried to place housing estates near light industrial areas so that there were enough jobs nearby so that people didn't mind staying in housing estates. So from the start, it was a, a survival issue. It, it was never about sustainability. And uh, over the years, uh, as you know, uh, incomes, income levels rose in Singapore, people became more affluent. Uh, then the government started to get Singaporeans to own their homes. So they said, okay, uh, uh, why don't you buy, you know, the, 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 the houses, you know, that you're staying in? Because this, this, this gives people a sense of ownership. So, so I, uh, and it's not difficult to understand this because, you know, if you own a place, you tend to take better care of it. And if you own a place, you tend to take better care of the surroundings of the property as well. So, um, uh, and it gives people a stake in the country. It gives people a sense that they belong to this country, that they, that they are stakeholders in this country. And this is important for a young country uh, without a long history. You, you, you need to build a sense of uh, nationhood and public housing was a keystone of this nation building effort. 
Okay, so what does all this got to do with sustainability and what does all this got to do with 99 years? Okay, so right from the start, uh, the government realized that, um, uh, okay, public housing for the bulk of the population, uh, we should get them to buy, get a sense of uh, ownership. But at the same time, uh, we shouldn't be penalizing future generations. So yes, you can get the current generation to own all the property that they desire at a subsidized rate for the bulk of the population because they stay in public housing. But what about the future population? If, if you sell all your land, use up all your land to, to cater to the needs of the current generation, then the future generation, they actually do not have much land for them you know, to build new apartment blocks. You know, they, they, they will find it very difficult to, to own property and, and they may feel disenfranchised, you know, they may feel, you know, uh, hopeless, you know, so the 99 year lease was put in place so that future generations will still have a steady supply of land for housing and, and other commercial industrial needs. So that's the purpose of the 99 year lease. How smart. I cannot think of a better example than Singapore now that I'm I'm thinking how many countries we've traveled during our master's program. Uh, you have extensively traveled in Europe uh, besides the master's program. Your master's thesis, you did it in Latin America. You mentioned everyone went to some exotic uh, destination, yes. <laughs> but you too, you were one of them. Uh, are there any cities? I know you mentioned in the beginning that you don't know, you know what kind of city would be uh, rightfully called an eco-city, but are there any examples in the world that you might remember of that would count as a sustainable city as smart as Singapore? So different cities have strengths in different areas, so I can provide some examples uh, from other cities which I think Singapore can learn from actually. Mm -hmm. So one prime example would be Copenhagen, because Copenhagen is known to be a very bicycle-friendly city. I mean, if you go to Copenhagen, bike lanes are everywhere. You know, uh, you see lots of people cycling. You know, and, and the traffic is very friendly towards cyclists. You know, so you don't feel dangerous cycling on the road because everything's so well organized, and 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 cyclists are, are, are respected as you know legitimate road users. Which sadly. Um, it's not so much the case in Singapore because we don't have that many cycling lanes on the roads yet. Uh, uh, we do have cycling lanes connecting different parks, uh, but uh, uh, people find that, you know, uh, as a last mile connection to public transport, these park connectors are not, not that uh, convenient because they connect parks, they don't connect to transport modes. Whereas in Copenhagen, you know, it, it, it is, a very bicycle friendly uh, city and uh, and i'm sure you would have read research uh, on the benefits of a bike friendly city not only does it uh, reduce carbon emissions it also it stresses me yeah so so i think this this one area that singapore is working towards and and, and i hope one fine day will be as bike friendly as copenhagen so that's one example Another example is in the form of uh, waste reduction in how people throw waste and how people recycle. Uh, one example I can think of is Taipei in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So they have this very uh, um, effective system 
which I'm very impressed with. So in Taipei, uh, you need to throw your rubbish in designated rubbish bags, which you need to buy from the municipal uh, agency or the municipal office. If you throw your rubbish in any other bag, uh, the garbage truck will not accept. So you have to pay money to the municipal authorities to buy a, a, a specific garbage bag, throw your rubbish in, and then when the rubbish truck comes, you bring it to the rubbish truck to throw your rubbish. Uh, at the same time, you can collect free bags to put in stuff for recycling. Mm -hmm. So if you have like uh, paper to recycle or clean plastic to recycle, uh, recycle, you can collect free bags from the municipal office and, 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 and you can uh, uh, give it to the truck when it comes to collect. So what this does is, is it incentivizes people mm -hmm. to throw away as little rubbish as possible because you don't want to spend too much money buying bags to throw your rubbish. Right. So, uh, uh, of course, uh, I, I, I read you know, uh, from, from articles that when this system was first uh, implemented, there was a lot of backlash, you know, because back then these bags were free. You, know, you didn't have to pay for it. And, and if you get people to start paying for something which was originally free, obviously people are going to protest. Uh, uh, they, they say, you know, it's going to make the cost of living higher. You know, this is, this is not fair. This is profiteering. You know, the municipal office not doing your job. No, but then they realized that after they, they, they switch over this new system, they end up paying less money for waste management. Because back then, the, the waste management fee, if I, if, I'm, if I remember it correctly, it was a flat fee. So it doesn't matter how much rubbish you throw away, you pay a standard fee across, mm -hmm. right? But now the garbage management fee is dependent on how many plastic bags you buy to throw away your rubbish. So you can actually control the volume of your waste and because people control, they realize that they, some of them at least end up paying less for their uh, waste disposal. Right. So I thought this was a remarkable system, uh, which uh, frankly speaking is a little bit difficult to implement in Singapore because uh, uh, we don't bring our bags to the truck. We throw our bags into a rubbish chute in our apartment. So it's like this uh, mm -hmm. hole in the wall where you throw rubbish inside and the bag will just drop to the ground level. We used so to have it here in yeah, Ukraine. So this convenience makes it difficult to implement the system in Taipei. But you know, it's, it's something that's impressive and it's a good uh, role model for other cities to follow. That you know, inevitably leads me to the next question. The policy, the governmental policy, how strong the institutions are in, in Singapore, in Taiwan to you know, to, Im to, to impose, to suggest these things and to control them. Because in Ukraine, we have a new law on waste management, if I'm not mistaken, since 1st of January 2018 or 19. I might, I might be uh, losing track of time here. Uh, but we are supposed to sort our trash and to also recycle it in, in different recycle, uh, reduce and so on. But this is just not happening. There is only one uh, waste truck taking everything, plastic together with paper, together with glass. So it just doesn't work. Uh, how strong and which institution is you know, maybe responsible for what? Urban planning, 
because it, it's not just about waste it's it's the integral system it's all together is um, it the ministry okay. so um so the singapore system is like this um we have a ministry of national development uh, so they, they look at issues of you know, you know development issues in singapore but under them they have this authority called the urban uh, ura the urban redevelopment renewal authority so they look at uh, uh, urban planning issues in singapore so they, they they are they are really the urban planners there's then there's another authority known as the national environment agency so they are the ones that are in charge of like pollution controls waste management and then we have a public utilities board that's in charge of water issues so there are different government agencies looking at specific sex, uh, sectors of, of uh, 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 city management. So are they strong? Uh, from a policy viewpoint, I think, as an ordinary citizen, yeah, they're quite efficient. Uh, uh, and I think the main reason being because um, our government can plan long term. Mm -hmm. So if, if your listeners do not already know, uh, we've had the same party in power for the past 55 years and for the foreseeable future i think you'll still be the same party so for uh to a westerner you know who is used to liberal democratic uh, uh party politics this may sound like an awful thing uh but from a planning point of view it's good because the party can have can have long-term vision so they can plan for the next 50 years or they can plan for the next and stick 100 to it. years so they can start simple small steps now that will accumulate into a big you know uh, differences in the future and and because you're in power for so long you know that your policies are going to be implemented they can be executed uh, so you have the confidence to to execute long-term projects and not worry uh, about being kicked out uh, uh, in the next general election, for example. So I think that's one strength of the Singapore government. Uh, and also, uh, uh, generally, I think Singaporeans are quite law-abiding. So if there's any law that is put into place, we generally follow the law. Uh, 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 we do. Uh, it's quite rare, rarely that people willfully break policies or break the law uh, because we know that the government uh, is very good at uh, implementing and enforcing laws uh, punishments can be quite severe if people break the law uh, but other than that you know uh, 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 if, if you follow the rules and regulations you're fine right mm -hmm. so in that sense uh, 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 the, the governance is strong but on the other hand there are certain issues that the government choose not to use uh, uh, laws and regulations to control, right? They prefer to do it via the means of public education, public campaigns, you know. So uh, these areas, uh, uh, the the effect, the effectiveness of public education and public campaigns, changing behavior, is a mixed picture in Singapore. Uh, some of them are not very effective. So, for example, uh, the use of uh, single-use plastic bags from supermarkets, you know. For the longest time, you know, uh, uh, there are environment, environmentalists you know, in Singapore urging, you know, for the government to make it uh, 
a mandatory you know, to charge the use of single-use plastics. And, and you see this in different countries, right? You see this in, in uh, the UK, you see this in Germany, uh, uh, and it's been proven that, yeah, and you know, it has been proven that, you know, with this charge in place, the use of plastic bags has reduced dramatically. So uh, people have been arguing uh, that, you know, uh, we should do the same in Singapore. Uh, but in this area, the government has decided, no, we shouldn't impose a law. We should get people to voluntarily reduce the use of plastic bags. We should, we should, treat this we should, treat, we should do this through education. We should, we should uh, do this through uh, public campaigns, you know, uh, to try to change people's behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, and the results are not very obvious. You know, still, uh, we don't see a huge reduction in the use of plastic bags. So. Uh, uh, there's a lot more work to do in this yeah. aspect. So this is just one example. Yeah. yeah. So democracy doesn't really work in this case. Uh, I will say that. I think. I think. Um, okay. So when people say the word democracy, so people use the word democracy so often that I, I have a sense that people don't understand what this word means. Right. I mean, if you look the at power the of people, what what it really means is. Uh, having a group of people decide on something, mm -hmm. right? You know, uh, uh, if you get a group of people to vote on something and collectively reach a decision, that's a democratic process, right? But if you look at how democracy is practiced in different countries, it's always merged with a certain set of social values that will uh, interact with this democracy, right? For example, in the US, you know, uh, uh, is I, I, I would think it's individual rights, you know, personal freedom, that's very important. So they merge this with democracy. So in the US, you cannot force people to vote, right? Because it's their personal freedom to choose whether they want to go to the voting station or not. It's their personal choice, it's their personal right, you cannot force that. But in Singapore, we do that. It is compulsory for people to go uh, vote. If not, you'll be uh, taken off the, the, the register roll. So, so if you want to vote the next time, it's a, it's a troublesome process to get yourself registered right. again. I heard the right. same about Belgium. You get yeah. fine, a fine if you don't go vote. And they really check it. Yeah. So, so different countries have different kinds of democracy and that depends on the social values of that particular society. For example, Singapore's brand of democracy for, to others uh, will seem very, very unpalatable. For example, if force people to go to vote, which to an American, he or she may think, oh, this is awful, how can you force people to, to vote? It's their personal choice. And also um, in Singapore, we try to protect minority rights. So we have this thing called the group, group representative constituency. So uh, you don't vote for individuals, you vote for a group of individuals to, to govern a particular constituency. So even if you don't like a particular person in that group, but as long as you vote for that group to enter parliament and the whole group, including the person that you may not like, will have to enter parliament. Mm -hmm. So for some people, this is not true democracy because uh, uh, you're not really choosing the people you want. You know, you're, you're, you're forced to choose a package that contains elements that you don't like, right? But the official narrative here is this, you know, uh, the reason why they do this is because in that group, 
the ethnic composition of their group of parliamentarians reflects the ethnic composition of the entire population. So the idea is to ensure that there are enough minorities in parliament. That's the official narrative. Because the understanding, the assumption is the majority will not likely to vote for any minorities to get into government. So you need to protect uh, minorities. You need to make sure that you have a group and that group must have some minorities inside so that they will be uh, they, they will get a chance to enter parliament to represent the population. So that's the official narrative. So, so uh, it, it may not be you know, uh, very palatable to other people in other countries, but this is how we work. So democracy, uh, we have it, but in a different form that other people may not understand or may not agree with. Yeah, I, I could hear uh, you know, notes of uh, inclusivity and diversity. But the question that I asked you about the social component, how to make a city socially inclusive, diverse and connected. What are your thoughts? Um, so the parliament the you already have, yes. the policy you already have, so there is already something established, which is great, but what else? So, um, I will have to refer back to the housing policy again, uh, the public housing estates. Uh, there is one policy that, um, uh, again, you know, um, uh, was implemented for survival considerations, less so for inclusivity. It wasn't in people's mind back then. Uh, we have this thing called ethnic quota policy in our public housing estates. That means uh, every housing estate, every housing apartment block will have an ethnic quota. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, so this ethnic quota mirrors the ethnic composition of the entire population. So uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, if, if this apartment block has too many Chinese, for example, then the, the uh, no new Chinese families can move into this block. It must be a Malay family or an Indian family. Conversely, if there are too many uh, Indian families in this block, you know, then no new Indian families can move in, only, uh, only Chinese families or Malay families can move in. So the, the reason for this is we want to uh, maintain ethnic integration in our public housing estates. And uh, ethnic integration uh, is our way of ensuring uh, cordial and peaceful inter-ethnic relations because um, uh, the experience of many other countries show that you know, inter-ethnic relations uh, quite often can become quite uh, uh, violent or, or quite antagonistic. So we, we, we do not want this to happen again. The reason why I say again is because Singapore used to experience racial riots uh, and, and uh, that was an unpleasant episode, you know, the Malays and Chinese were, 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 were eating each other, were trying to kill each other. So, so we didn't want history to repeat itself. So therefore, uh, we said, okay, we should get the races to mix with one another. And if, you know, uh, if your neighbors are of a different ethnicity, you will live with them, you will grow up with them, your children will play with them, you will understand them better. 
and you hopefully you know uh, it will promote mutual understanding and, and mutual tolerance and and uh, ideally mutual love and, and and protection yeah so no gaps so, so that that's from a survival perspective but of course uh, uh, when you when you look back and think about inclusivity inclusivity yes this is very inclusive because you make sure the minorities uh, are not constrained in ghettos and isolated from the rest of the society. So from an inclusivity perspective, yes, this is a, a, a good thing to have. The concept of the eco-city and sustainable city sounds to me, especially after talking to you, is a very complex, fun, and integral thing to work with. Let's say you were a mayor of city X. We, we don't know which city. Imagine. Which people, people from which backgrounds, professions would you put together to design a sustainable city? So um, you need different professionals from different sectors. Obviously, you need urban planners. You need real estate uh, professionals who knows how to manage the real estate market because we, we, we've seen in many cities that uh, that has uh, uh, real estate markets that have gone really you know, crazy and made you know, properties very, very unaffordable. Hong Kong is the classic case study. Uh, then you need uh, you know, scientists you know, who, uh, who knows how to make sure that the city is climate resilient. I think this is, this is a very important uh, uh, thing to have nowadays because I think climate change is inevitable. So you need scientists to know how to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So I think it's very important. You also need sociologists because you need to understand how people interact with the places they live in, they work in. So how do you create a city that is livable, habitable? So you need sociologists, you need economists because you need to know how to manage the economics of the city, how to promote businesses, how to uh, attract investments. Basically, you need all sorts of professions uh, in managing the city. And, uh, but most importantly, you must have people who are able to have a strategic uh, uh, planning uh, perspective. They must be able to think long-term. They must be able to think of strategic ways to achieve long-term uh, long objectives. Because short-term planning can only do so much. You know, uh, it doesn't address uh, various uh, uh, environmental issues that are typically very long-term, for example, climate change. Right. And um, yeah, vision, long-term vision and strategy, and preferably uh, the people that you know. I heard it somewhere. Uh, sadly, about Ukraine. Uh, People that come to power for four years are not coming to change uh, anything. They're coming to leave with more money in four years. And if, if you manage to build a, as a country, as a young country, manage to build a system where it's not the case, where, it's the, where the place is for people and made by people, that's a truly inspiring and amazing example. Probably one last question, because I know I'm keeping you late <laughs> for too long. Um, climate change and the climate resilient city. 
We've heard news about uh, Amazon rainforest burning, Australia being hit by fires, then floods, now snow. Uh, are there any specific challenges that Singapore faces? And if so, how yes. do you tackle them? Um, definitely. So, um, uh, firstly, it's the rise in temperatures. So, um, the Singapore is getting a hotter place to live in. So, this is uh, as, uh, especially a big problem because we're in the tropics. We are already hot to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, if the temperature rises again, then quite, quite likely we may become unbearably hot to live in. So, that's a possibility. Another big challenge that we have would be sea level rise. I mean, we are a low-lying island. Uh, so if, if the sea level is to rise by one meter, a lot of our low-lying areas in Singapore will be flooded and submerged. So these are uh, the few key challenges that we face in Singapore for the long term, yes. Mm -hmm. And is there anything happening already like against uh, sea levels rising? What, what is going so on? So as, as I think it's incredibly good timing that I'm talking to you right now because just yesterday the government announced long-term plans to, to, to combat climate change so I have okay I can't remember exactly what he said but the documents with me just give me a minute so um, so the government has pledged to reduce our carbon emissions by half, uh, by twenty, sorry, uh, by the uh, by twenty thirty, and they are aiming to achieve net zero carbon emissions by the second half of the century. So this is long term plans, and so to achieve this, they have uh, announced uh, various plans, various strategies to, to achieve this in. Uh, and they range from power generation, how to make our power generators uh, more energy efficient, and how to adopt more low carbon technologies. They have, they're also looking at uh, making sure that our industries achieve more energy efficient uh, solutions. Then there's also transport. Uh, We're trying to, I, th I think the government announced that by 2040, we should uh, replace all our conventional internal combustion uh, engines in vehicles, uh, mm -hmm. more environmentally environment friendly ones. Then there's also buildings, households, waste and water management uh, systems that they are trying to uh, uh, change gradually to achieve this uh, zero uh, net zero carbon emission. So these are long-term plans. And then also there are like uh, adaptation policies, uh, sorry, uh, strategies that they've announced, like building coastal defenses, and they have pledged, I think, $100 billion to be spent in the next 100 years. And I think in the budget announcement just a few weeks ago, they will first pump in $5 billion to kickstart uh, this coastal defense work, I think, yeah. Right. So lots of new announcements coming, and I expect to see more such announcements and more details going forward uh, uh, regarding uh, climate change uh, uh, adaptation and mitigation and things. Mm -hmm. strategies. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you very much for talking to me today. I learned a lot of new things and personally my takeaway, if I am to wrap it up in one phrase and one, you know, kind of a motto sentence, that would be 
you want an urban uh, resilience, uh, sustainable city, think long term, because that came yes. up many times during the interview. Yes. Thinking long term and uh, committing to the strategy and to the plan. And also scenario planning, because um, uh, you need to predict, of, of course, prediction is always a difficult thing to do, but you need to have people who, who plan different scenarios and, and devise strategies and policies to deal with different scenarios so that when a particular scenario does happen in future, you already have policies already designed to, to, to address the scenario. You know, no one likes this to is, do that. And this is particularly important for, uh, you know, emergencies or crisis management. You know, this is particularly yeah. important for that. Yeah. Risk management is the least preferred topic and subject of, of governments. But the but, time but, we live in. Yes, but it's important because uh, I know, you know, when it's peaceful and everything's going well, you know, if you spend money on doing these things people will think oh why are you wasting money why are you uh, 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 devoting resources to something that is not likely to happen but you need to be prepared okay so the, the prime example right now i can think of is the coronavirus uh, uh, epidemic right now so um uh in in other countries in other cities in other regions uh, there's a there's a mad rush to buy masks to buy you know, sanitation uh, chemicals to buy thermal scanners thermometers uh, uh, by the city officials or by the government uh, there is less of a rush in singapore to do this why because our government has already stockpiled masks uh, in in previous years in preparation for an outbreak like this they have already bought all the necessary thermal scanners They've already uh, 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 stockpiled the necessary chemical uh, uh, sanitation and disinfectant uh, uh, chemicals so uh, to be channeled to the public hospitals when such an outbreak occurs. So there's already a stockpile that was accumulated when there was no outbreak. Uh, and um, uh, therefore, when, when the outbreak occurs and there's a lack of supply, uh, it didn't really affect the Singapore government that much because they've already bought it. Really I must say but I'm now, beyond impressed. But now they are starting to trying to, to buy more because they, they see that the stockpile, the, the, the supply that they have stopped is decreasing and they want to buy more before the stockpile gets depleted. So that's, that's what the government is doing, trying to do right now. So I love this philosophy, you know. So preparation is key, but uh, to do this, the government or the city officials, they need to have the trust of the city population. The city population must trust that the city officials are spending money wisely, that they are not corrupt, they are doing things that are of a certain use, you know, uh, it may not be apparent right now, but it may prove its value in future. So there must be that level of trust also. Right. Well, uh, there is a lot of food for thought and I'm, I'm trying to think in my head to wrap up this conversation, the components of a green city, but I think we went beyond green city or sustainable city to a more philosophical long-term 
planning of life. Well, actually, regardless you of where you are. It's actually, if you notice, what I've shared with you is actually more about governance. Yes. Right? And governance is just, it's not just about sustainability. It's actually about survival. It's actually about everything, right? So to me, uh, actually, we, we shouldn't be so pigeonholed on, onto sustainability. To me, the best forms of sustainability, of, of course, you may disagree with me, but I, I sincerely think that the best way to do sustainability is such that it is achieved as an inevitable byproduct of something else. So, for example, uh, 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 the, 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 the waste management uh, in Taipei, for example, people choose to reduce their waste, uh, I think, primarily because they want to save money, not because of environmental reasons. But it's totally fine because when they are trying to save money, the inevitable byproduct is they produce less waste, which is good for the environment. So if we can design sustainability policies in such a way that they are actually uh, an inevitable byproduct of something else that people are more interested in uh, or more concerned about, I think this is the best and most natural way of doing sustainability. Right. On this positive note, <laughs> I thank you again for your time, for sharing your wisdom. I am never tired to say that you are one of the smartest people that I know. And I say oh, no, 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 no. it's true. I say it honestly. Uh, thanks very much again. Have a good rest of the day. I guess there is not much left for today in Singapore. It was very cool talking to you today and uh, it was great to touch base again. Well, it was my pleasure talking to you as well. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Thank you. If you like this episode, if you learned something new today, I invite you to check out the other episodes too. If you like the podcast, please leave a review, rate, comment on the platform you're listening on. This will help other people discover the podcast and learn something about sustainability. Thank you for listening, for being with us today, and until next time, take care, stay sustainable.